I think that's Frank Miller to a T, actually. He really dives into the male fantasy and he packages it up very, very stylishly, very brilliantly. Like that love scene, if you were to just script that, it feels real dumb. Like, oh, I love you. We're naked in the sewer together. Let's make love. And yet, visually, it's so beautiful. And I think definitely as a 16 to 21 year old, that fantasy really resonates with you, especially when you're a horny teenage boy. It's like, I am the silent warrior. I'm going to give you this dumb pickup line, but it's going to be beautiful because our colors are beautiful. I don't know. great works. I agree, old chum. But I think we've covered more than enough Batman for a while on this pod. No, no, no. The Frank Miller comic I'm thinking about is more of a scathing commentary on the sins of a corrupt society. Ah, well, there's Sin City. A scathing commentary on I don't even know what. Black and white and ominous narration. (laughs) It is scintillating. (laughs) No, Ryan. I'm talking about something that has more of a sci-fi subversive story. Frank Miller's Martha Washington? No, no, no. Try again. Something with the flair of Japanese martial arts. Let's try Frank Miller's classic Daredevil run. Oh, jeez. I guess Frank Miller does have a lot of tropes. Frank Miller's world is one where the men are men and the women are naked. <laughs> I'm Rumman Segel. And I'm Ryan Joe. And we are two dudes who are the disembodied spirit of a failed samurai warrior whose soul wanders for vengeance. But mostly just for some yakitori and space beer. Hi! This week we are reading 1983's Ronin by Frank Miller and longtime colorist and collaborator Lynn Varley. This six-issue miniseries was groundbreaking in many ways, as Miller, a then-relative newcomer and rock star hot off the heels of Daredevil, was recruited by DC to do pretty much whatever he wanted. This creator-friendly contract would pave the way not just for some of Miller's next great works like The Dark Knight Returns, but many other creator-centric projects that became some of comics' greatest works. Tell me more, Ruman. Whatever is it about? <laughs> Ronan tells the story of a disgraced samurai warrior and his sworn demonic enemy, Agat. Agat? Agat? Uh, Agat? Agat. I gotta go! <laughs> Awakened from a centuries-long slumber, trapped inside of a magical sword. The two are reincarnated in a near-future dystopic New York City, run by a benevolent technology corporation and their friendly, sentient AI. The Ronan finds himself in the body of an armless, legless telekinetic named Billy and creates cybernetic limbs for himself, and Agat does as one does and possesses the corporate head of the aforementioned corporation, also known as Aquarius. Gotta do that. It's like the Matrix before the Matrix, Highlander before Highlander. Or the cartoon Samurai Jack. So, Ryan, we have been talking about reading Ronan off and on for a while now. The Samurai Spring is finally upon us. What drew you to this book in the first place, man? Well, so I I read Ronan probably. I didn't obviously didn't read it when it came out because I was like two or three. Was I born yet? But I, I probably read it sometime in college. And by then I had gone through Batman Year One, The Dark Knight Returns, Daredevil Born Again, Daredevil Man Without Fear. So... 
I was just really digging Frank Miller. I think Frank Miller is one of the writers that really appeals to angry adolescents up to maybe people in their mid-20s. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I I really enjoyed it. It looked like no other Frank Miller book I had ever read before. Oh, also because I was steeped in Sin City at the time, which aesthetically is so different. Ronan is very, very bright in Sin City. Frank Miller was just like, I'm tired and old. I'm just going to put shadow on everything. With the so, splash of color. With a, yeah, with a, with a splash of, with a little bit of yellow for this guy. So Ronan was just a much different aesthetic than really all of Frank Miller's books. It, it is very unique. And I was blown away by it. And coming off probably having just seen like the Matrix, the whole concept of, was this world real? Is it a reality? Dreams becoming real. That was really blowing my college age mind. So I really loved Ronan the first time I read it. It really left an impression on me. How, how about you? Was, is this the first time you read it or, or had you read it before? Uh, it's like the one and a half time. So the thing about Ronan, like you, we all have an appreciation for Frank Miller and I never heard of Ronan. And I think I was in a comic shop once and in the dollar bin, I just found a random issue of Ronan somewhere like volume issue two or three or four of six, right? And... I took that one issue home because like, oh, it's Frank Miller. It must be good. So I just read it with no context. I was like, same early impressions and always meant to pick it up. And over the years in various dollar bins, I haven't gone through my comic collection, but I probably have four of the issues of Ronin. I've read them all out of order and I purposely never tried to piece it together. Just never got around to it. But all of those issues left this impression of, wow, Frank Miller was into some experimental shit that wasn't the dark, grim and gritty, grizzled stuff that we know from Sin City and his Batman work and his Daredevil work. So this was the first time I read it kind of cover to cover in one sitting and pieced the whole thing together. And I, I kind of made the decision going in that I was just going to let go. Like I forced myself to do it for some of the books on this podcast. Like like, and, the, like the Mobius book, which by the exactly, way, I exactly. definitely was, I think, an inspiration for Miller, especially when you look at how the Aquarius staff Absolutely. Dress and how they're yeah, and how they're how they're colored. It it really looks like Mobius's work. Yeah, and so it's just d decided to let go, have that Mobius experience, have that Blade Runner experience with this book, and not try to make heads or tails of it. Now, in this reading, by the time I got toward so really enjoying it for the first two thirds because I was just mm -hmm. on this roller coaster. But as with all things, as you're pulling it together. At the end. And I actually, there were things I really did like about the ending. So all in all, for my first real reading of it, it met expectations, but I didn't have many. So tell me, okay, so you alluded to the first time you read it, you loved it. Talk to me about the second time as a grown up, Ryan. I still love the art. I actually, I think this is some of Miller's best visual storytelling. The art feels so ambitious. The action scenes are so good. The way he does these like close-ups, the way he conveys swift movements. There's this sequence when these characters are trapped in the sewers in the dark, and he's so good at building dread. And even some of his flashier, more bombastic pages, there's literally a triple page spread at the end. Yeah. And it's beautiful to look at. The colors, you usually don't associate Frank Miller with just beautiful colors. And that's probably because of Sin City. But the colors are just astonishing. And credit to Lynn Varley for just really bringing this book to life. I think visually, each page is sort of a work of art, just aesthetically and in terms of the storytelling. It's gorgeous. That totally holds up. And actually, I think I appreciate that more. I have this cover actually of Ronan uh, uh, that I think Frank Miller did recently. 
it's more in the style of his Sin City art with these really big, bold lines. And the mm. color looks like it was done. It was done on a computer. Mm. And even though it's more recent art, it just completely pales in comparison in terms of the detail and the thought and the composition put into nearly every page of of Ronan. I'm just I just opened up the page right now and I'm looking at where Ronan is attacking everyone with arrows and he's riding on this horse. It looks like this tapestry. It's fantastic. Yeah. So I can't say enough about the art. I am in love with it. Just visually, I think like the work is worth picking up and flipping through just it, by the strength of the art. Absolutely. It's it's almost like the opposite of you can't judge a book by its cover. You you have to flip through this to see it to believe it. That's why over the years, every time I just pick up a random issue, you know, I was like, this is really cool. I wonder oh, what yeah. I, it, it just leaves you wanting more. And again, a credit to Lynn Varley, who has collaborated with Frank Miller on, on many things. It's just this book really shines. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, no, picking it up and just if you don't know the story and you're flipping through, there's so much mystique packed in these images. If, if you were to strip out the dialogue and just read it, look at it visually, I think that would actually create a much stranger, almost like a well, silent film, right? Where you're trying to figure out what exactly is going it, it, it's, on. It's funny you say that, Ryan, because um, so I'm linked two ideas together. So one, Sin City, when they made the film, right, it was literally a they tried as hard as they could to do like this real life adaptation of the comics pages. And they tried that as well with with 300 but with this i almost envisioned this as i would love to see this animated hmm. and adapted because <laughs> when i was younger in my 20s and we'd have parties i'd play really loud music and on my big screen tv i just play like planet of the apes movies on like silent right just like these weird visual depictions and this is the thing you just want to see playing on a bar <laughs> like just tabbing through the pictures because you're right these are these are things you want on your wall, but it's the animatics that you want to see of it. It's the sequential art with this full color bleed with these just weird situations I, that you're I, not sure what's going on. Yeah, I would actually push back on this. I just love the stillness of the images and the way each picture tells a very clear story. There, I'm looking at this one page where Ronan slices one of the sewer people in half and you see the sewer person running and in the dark you see the flash of a blade in the next panel you see this crimson slash going through one of the uh, the ogres the sewer people and the next panel is this huge panel you see the Ronan like emerging with his arms back because he's just finished swinging his sword and then the mm -hmm. body of the sewer person is like bisected in two and then he's back in shadow again and that is such a perfect sequence and then you see there's a shot of the woman who's like who's captive and she's just like staring at him and like in awe. It's just such a powerful moment. And I don't know if seeing that animated. Fair, fair. Is, yeah. yeah. It's just, just like the image, the, what you're filling in between the blanks. Oh man. Like I said, Frank Miller as in his early days, it's just like a, a storyteller. He was almost peerless. I think just creating a sense of awe and just really creating the sense of masculinity and violence and mystery. And that's why I think he was so good doing the dark Knight. That's just like a character that epitomizes those sort of traits. This is really, I feel like I'm talking to a bizarro you because you are gushing over something. And we've been gushing over the art and the sequential art storytelling. I, yeah. I think we have to talk about the story itself. <laughs> yeah, it's just a shame the story is so the story is so fucking stupid. There and, he is. There he you is. Know, well, I don't mind it. Every superhero story is a little bit weird, right? A guy gets bitten by a radioactive spider. A 
guy sees his parents killed and decides to dress up like a bat. Okay, so I'm okay with the samurai fighting a demon across time continuums. That's <laughs> fine. It's like a typical fantasy trope. But I, I guess, you know... Well, here's, here's the question. Here's the question. Was it a trope in the 80s? It's a trope now. That's a good question. You know what? And I wish I knew I had a, a stronger background in science fiction. Uh, uh, so, I was reading some of the reviews. When, when this story came out, it blew people's minds. Because I don't think it had been done. That's That's where... And again, I don't know that definitively, but... The book made an impact because it was so out and maybe it just hadn't been done in comics or call it geek culture because geek culture didn't exist. But in the intro to this episode, we poked fun a little bit at all the things that have done it. Right. But those things all came after the 80s. So, yeah, that is actually fair. But what's also true is that I'm rereading this now and as I'm nearing my 40s. And again, the impact this had on me when I was in my early 20s was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I thought this was amazing. My mind was just blown. So I, I, I understand that. But now I've gone through so many Marvel movies, so many science fiction mm -hmm. movies, so much, so many more where geek culture is now the dominant culture in entertainment. Like it's literally the only thing that gets people into a movie theater these days. Now I'm reading it and being like, I've seen this shit before. And as much as this might be the progenitor of a lot of the cool stuff that we see in pop culture, I still can't get over the fact that, yes, it feels derivative even if this was one of the first to do it but that's my take what's your take what's your take on the story i don't want to go to i feel like i'm going to go off the deep end pretty much <laughs> i this is one of those things where i could disengage and maybe we have seen it before but when this came out we hadn't seen it before that that's like really what i had to i almost subconsciously knew that reading this and again, my choice to let go while reading it allowed me to enjoy it a lot. Now, to be clear, I the plot tended to drag a little bit towards uh, the latter half. Mm. I actually did enjoy the plot twist, but the plot twist didn't even add up because we spent so many pages at the beginning with the original samurai in the ancient times, right? I that, think, spoiler alert, the I, plot twist is he's not really a spirit. It's just like some AI nonsense. Yeah, so, I... I, I I think the issue with the plot twist is that there's so much exposition leading up to the plot twist, but that by the time they explain the plot twist, it's like, okay, I guess that's happening too. It's it's not like, and then suddenly you have this reveal. People have been slowly like just giving you these info dumps. And so when you do get this one info dump that's supposed to be monumental, at that point, you're like, I'm tired of reading all of this backstory. That's I, so there's a there's a, I can't really put my finger on where the dragging is. But yeah, it's almost like I think had this been four issues and not six issues, it would have been tighter. Yeah, it's like cut some of it out. And then we're reading the director's cut now. I think my issue is that and I said the plot was stupid. And maybe that's not really the issue I had with it, because it is essentially just a very high concept plot. It's the fact that I feel like Frank Miller made decisions and then went back on them like there was no real consistency in terms of the characters and it felt towards the end especially like he was making it up as he went along let me give you I, like there are two examples actually there are three things that really stuck out to me where i'm like wait that's not how we set that's not how you set up this character like when the doctor breaks into aquarius and confronts the ceo who's gone rogue and he's like 
ah, uh, you can't keep me out. And he, he comes in like this badass. And then the next page, he goes on this drunken rant. And suddenly it's like he's shifted. <laughs> he's become like a different person. He comes in like, you can't keep me out. I know how to get into every nook and cranny of this place. Aren't you forgetting that I invented this? Okay. And you're like, oh, okay. He's, he's doing the badass. And then the next thing he's doing this drunken ramble. And it's like, okay, Frank Miller, which one do you want? Right? You're like splitting the baby here. And there's no real logic just within that one scene. So that was like one example that really bugged me. Another example, it's not, well, it's, it's, it's kind of the added up, let's just say. Another example is Virgo, the way he treats the AI. And I know that Virgo turns out to be this big yeah, bad even AI is, the AI is an inconsistent character. In yeah, and first it seems like helpful and like, oh, I don't know what to do. And then towards the end, like Virgo literally becomes like Hal from Space Odyssey. In fact, there's literally a moment where a guy is in a, like a, a vacuum suit going in Hal's or Virgo's memory banks and deleting memory, though in this case it's with a gun, which is more appropriate for a Frank Miller comic. And so there was this weird switch in the middle where Virgo's personality suddenly seemed to change. And I do understand that Virgo was like the enemy throughout, but... But just within that context, why did Virgos just suddenly like switch personalities? It felt like there was no interior logic to Virgo or that the interior logic of Virgo kept changing. Like, he, like Frank Miller wasn't sure whether Virgo was going to be a helper, going to be a victim, going to be the ultimate enemy at the end and was still trying to decide throughout the comic. It didn't feel like there was really a method to Virgo's inconsistency there. So that was something else that really I was like, huh, that was I don't get the sense you're making really sharp decisions and then the third is the treatment of casey how she becomes like the next samurai and that's a shift that i really it's cool in concept but i really didn't understand the logic yeah. of how that yeah the, the spiritual imbuing it, it's there's a few things like she lost her agency and look the love scene it's fine but she lost her agency in that moment mm. and and then all of a sudden she gets superpowers, right? And then later on for Virgo to reveal that it really isn't like the spirit of the sword, but somehow Casey was just inspired. It's, it, yeah. So uh, Casey was a, a really interesting character for the first half of the book. And even though she is a badass for the second half of the book, and it's well, awesome. she's a damsel in distress for like the middle part, and then she's a badass, like a silent warrior badass. Well, yeah, it's like a, it's, it's yeah, she's like a badass sandwich. Like at the beginning and the end, yeah, she, she is a badass. <laughs> in the middle, she's just lettuce. <laughs> but 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 in that moment, it it weakens the second half of the badassery, right? And yeah, it's, it's frustrating. But it's another example of three different versions of Casey. There's the Casey who's like the security officer who's like she's, she's got a duty and she's mad that her men have been killed by this Ronin. And then there's second Casey, which is suddenly her hair grows long and she's naked in a sewer <laughs> and she has to be saved by the samurai and she they make passionate love for like. It's actually a, a visually it's a cool sequence, but narratively it makes not a lot of sense. Like she's just overcome by his masculinity or whatever. Mm. And then there's third Casey where she's like the samurai apprentice, the the one who becomes a samurai, and she becomes this like silent warrior badass. And those three versions of Casey never really align. There's no real character transition, no real evolution in terms of how she gets from point A to B to C. It's just like three different. It, it feels like three separate characters entirely. Yeah, the, again, the Casey arc is it's probably the thing that began the undoing of the book for me, like the middle part, because 
And and I appreciated her as the everyman, the person whose eyes we're seeing this entire story unfold. That makes everything happening so fantastic. And again, the robbing of her agency, again, and it's a beautiful scene of the rescue that you alluded to earlier, and even the love scene, right? It's really just beautiful. Like, the art makes this thing shine, but it doesn't add up with the actual plot. It, it's like almost like this male fantasy. I think that's Frank Miller to a T, actually. He really dives into the male fantasy and he packages it up very, very stylishly, very brilliantly, particularly in like The Dark Knight, in Ronin, especially. I think like towards the latter part of his career where his shtick became more of a shtick, the campiness really started to come through more than the style. But here, like that love scene between him and Casey, if you were to just script that, feels real dumb like oh i love you we're naked in the sewer together let's make love and there's actually like this justification that the ronin has for making love it's like we're on a cliff and above us is death and below us is death let's enjoy the butterflies worst, in between wor- <laughs> and it's like worst pickup line worst pickup oh, line ever you just want to fuck <laughs> okay <laughs> and it's so campy and yet visually it's so beautiful like when you see it illustrated you're just like that's pretty freaking sick. And I think definitely as a 16 to 21 year old, that fantasy really resonates with you, especially when you're a horny teenage boy. It's like, I am the silent warrior. I'm going to give you this dumb pickup line, but it's going to be beautiful because because our colors are beautiful. I don't know. I mean, that's the whole thing with the Ronin, right? So Billy is the amputee who eventually becomes the Ronin somehow. And that's like, you've got this hapless couch potato. He literally is like a potato. And he suddenly becomes this badass and he doesn't really know women, but then he really knows one woman and he's so cool and he's so muscular. And even though he takes a beady, he keeps on coming. So it's still that it's like this infantilized male hero because he really is. This is nothing except Casey until towards the end. Then he starts, for whatever reason, starting start speaking in these weird aphorisms. And so, yeah, so so the Ronan character feels very much like this embodiment of how an adolescent might interpret being a man. And that's actually, in a way, I think a lot of a lot of Frank Miller comics. The, the motivations of characters are very, very sketched out. There's really not a lot of nuance. You're buff, you're a man, you're a weakling and an evil, or you're a do-gooder who's still like physically unable to really deal with the circumstances around him. A Frank Miller world is a world where you can just beat something into submission. And So I, the last two things I want to talk about, which I, I don't even know if we need to litigate, but it's like, one, the villain or the lack thereof in Agat, right? But then also the plot twist. So Agat, like, again, it's one of those things that begins really well in ancient japan the demon and the sword and the sword can only win by with the blood of an innocent and that whole story with the other maiden and all that stuff like it's it's great and then the future both the sword releases the ronin and agat and they both possess different people and agat of course like stereotypically that we see now takes the most powerful corporate ceo and has all of the technology and power at his fingertips And then he doesn't really do anything. There's not a real, it's just machinations with all the toys, right? And I don't know. The villain just fell apart in the second half as well. Well, that goes to what I was saying earlier. Like, well, so make a decision for Frank Miller. Is Casey (laughs) 
a vengeful security guard? Is she a damsel in distress? Is she a silent warrior? What is she? It, so who's the villain? Is it a god? Is it the CEO? You know, or who is like taking the form of a god? Is it Virgo? It, it, it gets really convoluted. And I think part of it is that he sets up one villain and then he like brings in another a god in the form of the CEO, which I guess is still a god, but it, it, it feels like a different character because a god is very much of a physical. She, she turns into a bird or something like that, but he's still a physical fighter he's a demon and then when Agat turns into the ceo suddenly the way he goes about his master plan is through scheming and machinations and business deals it so even though it's technically <laughs> the same character it feels that very much how like evil a, is uh, that is how evil is done ryan yeah he, he feels like, deals. right he feels like a, such a different character it's he's almost not recognizable because the way of combat is just so different and then of course it's ultimately it's virgo at the end which i'm not quite sure what virgo did i guess took over disintegrated the the ceo with her weaponry and then used the bio circuitry to become to create a new ceo which yeah by the end i didn't give a shit by the yeah, end i, I didn't i'm, give I'm a not shit. actually sure and then what the point of is of like why does virgo need the ronin to carry this out like in fact doesn't creating the ronin make things more difficult and if you created the ronin why can't you just uncreate the ronin why are you letting the ronin give you so much trouble and what by the way, what the hell happened to Billy through all of this? Like, I you see, like, <laughs> Billy... Like, initially, you think Billy's breaking through when the Ronin says, Casey, Casey, but not really. Then there, then Billy starts speaking in those weird aphorisms again. Again, it's like one of those stories where there's, like, a lot of ideas there, but they don't add up to anything, and it feels a little bit like he's making it up as he goes along. And this is what happens when... Okay, so I opened this podcast saying it paved the way for creators... Basically, Frank Miller wrote his contract because DC wanted him so bad. And there was zero editorial control on his creative vision. There weren't people poking holes in, what the fuck are you doing? Shut up, it just looks cool. Shut up, this is high concept. <laughs> and it sold. It did well. So are we better for it? Yes. But are we better for thinking about it? I don't know. No, actually, yeah, I said before that I really like works of art, comics, movies, whatever, where you're plugged into the creator's head. So even when the creator makes really weird decisions that don't make a hell of a lot of sense, you're like, okay, let's just go for it. So as much as I've been shitting on Ronan, um, at least the storyline, I really appreciated seeing Frank Miller's just completely unvarnished, unedited vision. There's a, actually, there's another horror movie that I saw from 1992. It's called Dust Devil. It's a horror movie, independent horror movie by this guy named Richard Stanley. And okay. that's another movie that I actually view similarly. It feels like Ronin a little bit, not in terms of the plot, but just in terms of just this madcap imagination this guy pulling together these weird images, trying to stitch it all together with this narrative about a serial killer. And it doesn't really add up. There are narrative threads that just vanish and inconsistencies and characterization. And Ronan feels of that piece. It's like this guy who's got total control, who's a visionary visually. And just if they really wanted to make a good movie, probably just needs a story editor to really tighten things down. And I appreciate both while acknowledging that a movie like Dust Devil of comic like Ronin has significant narrative problems. I also appreciate the sloppiness of it in a way. It doesn't necessarily absolve some of the, the weirdness of the narration of the narrative, but it I like just appreciated being in the dude's head. 
Uh, yeah, agree. It's it. Frank Miller is many things, but one thing he definitely is is pure id. Oh, that's a great way of describing him. Yeah, he is pure id, and I I think at least with you know Dark Knight Returns and Daredevil, he presumably had an editor reining him in a little bit. So, and I actually feel the same way about Alan Moore. His best work is when he's a little bit constrained, and either constrained by the rules of the genre like a superhero genre or whatever, or maybe by an editor. But there are times when, like with America's Best Comics, where he just goes completely off the rails and I have no effing idea what the story is about. Like Promethea by Alan Moore, just like, it starts out cool. And I'm like, and then it just ends in this, it goes off in this place. Like, what is going on? It's like an acid trip. And what's so interesting about that is... A lot of creators do that later on in their life cycle, or maybe even midway through. Like, I don't know the director who did The Doors, but it's the same thing. Versus, but with with this book, Frank Miller's Ronin, he was at the beginning of his career. And again, this opened even more doors. This led yeah. to DC saying, go do whatever the fuck you want with Batman. That's what this led to. And which resulted in Batman Year One and Batman The Dark Knight Returns, basically his bookends of the beginning and end of Batman. And uh, it's so interesting that early in his career, they just gave him the reins to do whatever the fuck he wanted. Kind of thinking about like this Batman books, like Batman Year One, there's like a narrative constraint to it. And now this might just also be his progression as a writer. But it's also like very definitively, it is the first year of Batman. It begins when he emerges, it ends when he's gone. And then Batman The Dark Knight Return is essentially Batman's last stand. And so he's like tied to the existing mythology of Batman. So he can't really go completely, just start making stuff up. There are certain elements that he just needs to pull in and that needs to be part of the the storyline. And I feel like- Whereas with Ronan, with, which is his own creation. Exactly. He does whatever the fuck he, he wants. He does whatever right? he wants. It doesn't really matter. It's And it goes off the rails in a way that I don't think makes for a necessarily better book, even though it's never particularly uninteresting. But again, I want to come back to the visuals for a second. Because we, we, you've made the, the comment about tapestries and just you want to stare at it with with his Batman work. And it's equally beautiful. I could haven't looked at it for a while. But if you put that up on the wall, you're putting Batman up on your wall. If you're putting Ronan up on the wall, you don't know what the fuck this is. It's just fucking cool. And there's just hmm. something about this undiscovered. Undisco- it's not IP. It's just it's a thing. It's just a cool, weird thing. Yeah, it feels a little bit like a dream, right? You have these Nazi gangs with black people in it, (laughs) in it also, black people and Nazi gangs. You've got zombies. You've got ninjas running around New York City. It's just ninja robots, ninja robots. You've got ninja robots as well. It's this complete hodgepodge of genres and ideas that make for just such a visually inspiring book so yeah so so i know we always ask would you recommend this and the answer is yeah i would recommend it knowing that okay there's some weird shit happening here there's some narrative bagginess stuff that in in inconsistencies but just you know i i said like let it go well like yeah like when I, when I was talking about, when we were talking about Zuma's Night Bus, right? Like the memoir as through a dream. And this is also like this adventure story as seen through through a dream. And I, I think, as you mentioned, if you just like go with the flow, it really works. It's really just, it's just really captivating. And where it doesn't work is towards the end 
when you have all the exposition and they're trying to make sense of everything, all of the weird images that have been thrown together. And that's when you realize, oh, okay, it's actually, there's a mundane explanation for it all. (laughs) That undoes everything from the previous six issues. Yeah. Yeah, right? At that point, you're just sort of like, nope, it's actually, this was the villain all along, and it was just an illusion. And you're like, all right. I guess that actually beggars more questions, but I don't want to go there because I don't necessarily want the answers. (laughs) Would you recommend it? Yeah, I would. Actually, I was going to say it depends. I was going to cop out with your usual answer, but whether you're a reader of comics, it's like if you, I was going to say, look, if you've read some of Frank Miller and you want to go deeper with Frank Miller and want that pure it experience of Frank Miller unleashed. Absolutely. Or if you don't read a lot of comics and you just want to go on a really wild and fun ride, unlike anything you've probably seen before, go for it. Like uh, this book is, it's fun. It's beautiful. It doesn't make sense, but don't worry about it. Just keep going, go with the flow. Uh, It's a fun ride and it's worth reading. And especially when you put it in the context of when this came out in the early 80s, it was ahead of its time for sure. Yeah. And I I still think even today, visually, it totally, totally holds up. As much as I said, some of the concepts here feel a little bit dated. The art does not at all. Uh, The art is just like mind blowing. Timeless. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Roman, I am afraid to ask you what we're reading next week because whatever we say we're reading next week is never the thing we actually read next week. But, Roman, what are we reading next week? Well, Ryan, as the only person who seems to be reading our top secret, super secret spreadsheet, next week is actually... We need a new spreadsheet. We need a new spreadsheet. Sorry, go on. No, we need a co-host who reads the spreadsheet. We need pivot tables or something. Next week is actually Quarantine Comics number 100. That's right, folks. Ryan and I have been reading stupid-ass comic books and drinking and yelling at each other for almost two years because technically two years would be 50, 104. Yeah, two years would be 104, but 100 is a big number. So what we're going to read, the monumental, super original thing we're going to read for Quarantine Comics number 100, Ryan? Yeah, I do, because I introduced it a few episodes ago. (laughs) That's right. We're going to read comic books with the number 100 in them. Batman Year 100 by Paul Pope. And Paul Pope actually happened to make another book called... 100%. 100%. We're keeping it 100 for Quarantine Comics, number 100. Right. And I know I promised that a few episodes ago, but this time we actually mean it. We're really bad at counting. I'm sorry. Quarantine Comics, not known for its math. Not known for its math. Even though it's two Asian guys who don't know their math because they spent all their youth reading comic books. Or Quarantine Comics, sequential storytelling without any sequence. (laughs) And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of the books we read at qtdcomics.com. And since for sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what Ryan got wrong. qtdcomics at gmail.com. Give you a social media handle, but we're old, and that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe.
pretty pictures. Look at the pretty pictures. That's I'm going to cut right. that because that is that that makes it sound creepy. <laughs> at the end of an episode about being tortured and disemboweled. <laughs> Holy Potluck Potluck